that corpse you planted last year in your garden, has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? This is my favorite line uh, from T.S. Eliot's famous poem, The Wasteland. I don't know if anybody's heard of it or read of it, um, where he asks if the death and pain that once was, has it begun to sprout? Have flowers bloomed from the same soil where that corpse lays? So with that, permit, permit me to ask just a couple of questions. And this is for both those who follow Jesus and those who have chosen not to follow Jesus who are here tonight. In the flames and in the fire of suffering, what gets you through it? I believe I may have already asked this question throughout this this series, but I want to ask again, what brings the flowers from the corpse in your times of suffering, in the times you're in fire? Or maybe you haven't yet experienced tragic traumatic suffering, but have you given much thought to what will be the spine of your endurance or the motivation for your perseverance? It seems for most today that the common medication to bring, you know, bring us through pain or bring us through tribulation is to suck it up, just suck it up, champ, tiger, or, you know, it's somehow numb it with pills and medication or forgetfulness or alcohol, or to try and just remember that time is the great healer. No, no, time will heal all wounds, which is a load of garbage. But for me, for me, I really, really, really like this perspective that Eliot brings in this portion of his poem and essentially to the existence of suffering. Will something good blossom from the bad? That's what he's asking. Because that's one of the greater challenges with suffering, Right? Is it not? To get a high enough perspective, to get a perspective from the vantage point of heaven that something right can actually come from this. That something can blossom, that flowers can grow in the cemetery. Author and Pastor John Stott, who I've quoted quite a bit, so sorry about that, but he too has a blurb on this where he says, it is the hope of glory that makes suffering bearable. The essential perspective to develop is that of the eternal purpose of God. So if we're getting this, what is one of the strongest instruments that carries us through suffering? It's perspective. It's the other end perspective. That this suffering will have unforeseen good effects. That this suffering, that suffering in general, whatever type of suffering, will have unforeseen good effects. Or as Stott said, eternal purpose. And it's in knowing this, that all things will work out together for good, that is what makes any and all suffering bearable in its midst. Right in the middle. That's what makes any and all suffering bearable in the middle of it, is this perspective. Which tonight then, in wrapping this up, leads us to a new door as we've been walking down the halls of suffering, and the door today is that of the effects. The effects of suffering or pain or persecution or evil. Because it's a knowing about its good and right effects that will come helps to develop that much-needed perspective that we all need. In Collective Church, this has been the goal for this entire month to try and help and equip and comfort and inspire and redeem and remind 
Remind us that our suffering, your suffering, is a reality. Your suffering, my suffering, suffering in general, is a very real reality. And this is true for Christians or not. We've said it again, and Lorenzo already said it, but it's worth repeating. It doesn't matter who you are. We all speak the universal language of suffering. Pain isn't partial. It transcends all class and race and ethnicity and culture and gender, age, and privilege. I love author Oswald Chambers' quote with his whole no one is off the hook with suffering thing. He says, suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. Each one ends in the cross. The bad thief is crucified, the penitent thief is crucified, and the Son of God is crucified. By these signs, we know the widespread heritage of suffering. But tonight, though, we will diligently labor in working to see that this heritage And hear me, this heritage can have eternal, monumentous, unforeseen effects, thus making suffering valuable. Thus making suffering valuable. And as I wrote those words, or I was thinking that, I was thinking that is an intense, otherworldly mindset. Suffering can be valuable. Has anyone been able to have the perspective in the midst of their suffering. But this is valuable. Suffering of any kind can actually have importance, worth, or even usefulness. Now, please hear me. I don't say that lightly. That to believe suffering can have value or is useful feels, or at least it felt demented to verbalize. It feels demented. That amber alerts or sex trafficking or ISIS or 9-11... I mean, you'd have to be sick to think that some value will come from those things in and of themselves. There's no way they could actually birth value, probably because the truth is they can't. I think that's what was getting me as I was trying to verbalize this at my computer. How can ISIS bring value? How can 9-11 bring value? They can't in and of themselves. See, it's only with Jesus Christ the value will come. It's God that blows everything into effect. And even the things that we may not say, well, I don't see the hand of God here, but good came of it just like this, this, and this, I would still say that is God. See, God is life's great weaver, weaves sorrowful tragedy into surprising triumph. And it's in the pages of Acts, we've watched this early church, this Jesus community, this very first Jesus community, forego the suffering of threats and beatings and abuse and imprisonment and now executions. And their suffering was far too real for these basically untrained, you know, heavy blue-collar fishermen. And yet, Acts chapter 8, verse 4 shows us where the flowers blossom from the corpse. We see the surprising triumph, the effects and value from the, sadly, from the the suffering of a dear friend who was murdered. Here's the effect. Look down at verse 4. Now, those who were scattered. So we're seeing the effects and value Verse 4, now those who were scattered, 
scattered, scattered, scattered. I was thinking today as my family and we grew up in Oregon. I've told you guys some of those stupid tales, but we grew up in Oregon and watering and planting seeds and harvesting was the normals of every day. I was just telling my kids the other day because they're so bummed that, you know, they have to maybe once in a while put a pillow on a chair. And I was like, I used to milk cows at 4 a.m. And so I was just trying to show them that I lived on a farm and show them they have it pretty good. But gardening, as some of you may know, was it's very challenging. But one of the biggest challenges for us while we were on the farm were our tomato plants, our tomato plants, in part because the actual planting of seeds I remember, I remember my mother handed to me, you plant these seeds, and once you're done, you can come watch Dark Queen Duck. And I was like, girl, you shouldn't have told me that. And so what happened was, I'll never forget it, ripped open the seeds, dumped it. And we had rows, like about as long as this, as I should have been planting tomato seeds. Well, harvest came, and all these tomato plants, like 70 different tomato plants formed this weird, creepy tomato sculpture, and they were just, it was freaky. And I could, I, I'll never forget, we, we, we paid dearly for it. We paid dearly for it as they grew fast, and it was impossible to maintain, and ultimately, uh, these plants began to die. I think you guys see where I'm going with this, that the fruit of the early church, get it, fruit? Tomatoes are fruit, Bryce, you get it? You guys are lucky to have me. This stuff, and this stuff is good. This is gold. The fruit of this first church was awesome. The fruit of this very first Jesus community was amazing. It was incredible. The church, as historians and commentators would tell us, the church right then would have been about where we're at in Acts 8, three or four years old. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were all part of this singular church. And all the ministers and all the believers and all the tomatoes were in one place. And again, all of this seems great. They're unified. They're together. They have a bumping youth ministry with like a rock climbing wall inside of it. They're doing great. The church is a mega church. Who doesn't want that? But all of this perceived greatness is actually quite devastating because they are this church these people are off mission they are off course i was thinking today it's like a cargo ship that is more like a cruise ship the church in jerusalem became the destination rather than i don't taking themselves somewhere the church was massive like a redwood tree in a single vase but god wants this you know this forest or wilderness. God wants a sprawling, scattered ministry and community. So dare I say, for the church to remain, for that church to remain where it was at in Jerusalem, for them, hear me, it was convenient. They were pretty happy there up until Acts chapter 8. It was convenient. Some commentators I've read went as far to declare that it was comfortable. Comfortable that the church in Jerusalem was comfortable with threats. The church in Jerusalem was okay. You know, they managed through the beatings. The church got through the imprisonments. But the church was rocked and shaken and cracked open by the martyrdom 
of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. His death. Basically, at this point, the first church woke up. Stephen's death, like an alarm, like a siren. And so the suffering and persecution, as we saw last week, God allowed and God used to scatter the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You guys have probably heard that very famous quote where it says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Get this, suffering wakes people up. Think of your times of suffering. It wakes you up. Persecution fans into flame the good news of Jesus. And the blood of the martyrs multiplies this community. And the church finally does what it should have been doing all along. And we witness that when the cause of Christ is more desired than comfort, then I believe, and I really do believe this, then things will never be the same. Things will never be the same. Look at verse 4 again. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The persecution and the suffering didn't lead these Christians to some greater isolation or safe house, but to evangelization. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip left. Philip left. Philip left Jerusalem. Philip left home base. Essentially, if Stephen was the first martyr, Philip was the first missionary. Philip leaves. And where did Philip go? He's like, persecution? It's time to get my sandals resort on. I'm taking it easy for a little bit. Heckles, no. What does he do? Look what he does. He went down to Samaria. Samaria. This is a place you don't go. This is like us in Glendale. You just don't go there. <laughs> friends stop friends from driving to Glendale. They're like, bro. Mm-mm. But seriously, Samaria was a place you just didn't go. You just don't go there. It was taboo. See, Samaria was chummy back in the day with those who drove Israel into exile. Samaria had rituals where child sacrifice was present. Samaria, Samaritans were off limits. Now, geographically, you have Jerusalem, and then you have the city of Samaria about 30 miles north. It's about a one- or two-day track, if you had an animal or not, excuse me. But Philip made that track. Philip made that trek, and out of anywhere in the world he could have gone, anywhere in the world, he goes there. The taboo, weird place nobody wants to be. The dangerous place, the the gross place nobody wants to be. Why? Think about it. If you've been with us for a while, why would he go there? Does this sound familiar? It sounds an awful like, in my opinion, what Jesus told them back in chapter 1, what you all should be doing. This is what Jesus says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In Acts chapter 1. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And everybody's like, we got that down. Jerusalem's covered. And all of Judea and Samaria. And to the end of the earth. I highly doubt Philip wanted to go there. It would have been greatly uncomfortable. But when the cause of Christ is more desired than our own comfort, then things will never be the same. 
Now, I'm not saying that it'll be easier or more fun or simple or more comfortable. Again, quite the contrary. But it will be worth it. If I, if I die tomorrow, God forbid, and my legacy in this church is just telling people how worth it pain and hardship is for Jesus, I would be so pumped to have somebody write that on my... I just want to preach that every day of my life. Go, yeah, that sucks. Yeah, that sucks. This is hard. Jesus is worth it. Christ is worth it. And Paul, who we saw last week, who was known by Saul, if you guys remember, and he was really the grim reaper in so many ways to the early Christian movement, but God rescues him and uses him in an outrageous way and transform Paul, who was Saul, help us to see and understand that worth. Paul says this. Think of all this in light of suffering and what we're thinking about with Philip. Have that as your, you know, your mind, frame, eye, sense. You know, you know what I'm saying. But this is what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Then he goes on and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what I'm seeing here is that everything can be counted as loss. Everything as loss to the worth of knowing Jesus. See, not just material possessions and not just financial security, which I think are sometimes so easy to be like, yeah, I'm not taking anything with me when I'm done here. And so we can kind of be like, yeah, it'll be tough if I lost those things. Everything. When weighed, like when weighed on the on the scales of knowing Jesus, everything on the scales of knowing Jesus. Everything shall and should lose. And that word everything, I just kept thinking how how to get around it. It's pretty cosmic. That word everything is pretty cosmic. That everything can be counted as loss. And if you think about it, what what is the core of our suffering? What is the core of suffering? What is the black heart of suffering? It's loss. The loss of health, or the loss of expectations, or the loss of dreams, the loss of an ability, the loss of loved ones, the loss of children. We talked about it with Job these last few weeks. I mean, every inch of his suffering was due to loss. So what Paul is saying here is, I can suffer in every way. I can suffer every day. And I can suffer everything. And yet, he says, I count everything as loss to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Surely, if this has any truth to it, if you're thinking, no, okay, this has some truth to it, then a trip to Samaria, an uncomfortable trip to Samaria, is worth every step. 
so that others too may come to know the surpassing worth of Christ. I hope you're seeing the book of Acts, even the suffering that we've been seeing as we're seeing in our verses today, reminds us that following Jesus is not comfortable, that it's not convenient. We've tried very hard to make sure that people know that following Jesus or being part of a community is not comfortable, it is not convenient, and it is not easy. So many assume, and this is so crazy, but so many assume that any discomfort or trial must be the work of of the enemy. Any discomfort or trial is the work of the enemy. But friends, may I pose a different thought or another way. What if comfortableness was the work of the enemy? Now hear me, I'm not talking about, this jacket is comfortable, Satan. Like that's not what I'm saying. These seats are comfortable. The power of Christ compels you. That's not what we're talking about. Or even the fact that I'm comforted by the sermon or scriptures or music. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is essentially this. If we want to be comfortable, if we want to be comfortable, don't be part of a church Christian community. If we want to be comfortable, don't be in discipleship with one another. That's uncomfy. That's awkward. If we want to be comfortable, leave when things get tough or weird or awkward or challenging. If we want to be comfortable, don't sacrifice for one another. If we want to be comfortable, collective church, don't receive prayer. Don't you dare pray for anybody. If we want to be comfortable, don't talk to people you don't know on Sundays. If we want to be comfortable, don't have people over for dinner. If we want to be comfortable, ignore your neighbors, close your blinds. (laughs) If we want to be extremely comfortable, wait for others to initiate relationships or volunteer, whatever. And my last little rant, if we want to be comfortable, critique instead of care, complain instead of invest, sideline it instead of serve, and hide instead of herald. It's only right, I believe, that I ask in this moment... So let me ask you, Christians, are you comfortable? Collective church, are are you comfortable? But if we don't want to be comfortable, if we hear that list and we're like, no, I don't want to be comfortable, then friends, collective church, do not tolerate any complacency, stagnant, half-heartedness in your life, in your church community, in your relationships. Totally give yourself over to God's purposes. I haven't quoted author Francis Chan a lot, but this quote fits like a perfect little puzzle piece. He says, I quickly found that the American church is a difficult place to fit in if you want to live out New Testament Christianity, much like what we're seeing in Acts. The goals of American Christianity are often a nice marriage, children who don't swear, whatever that means. You should hear my daughter. And (laughs) children who don't swear and good church attendance. He goes, that's for the, the radicals who are unbalanced and who go overboard. Most of us want a balanced life we can control that is safe and that does not involve suffering. The early church was too comfortable. So God ordained suffering to shake it up. 
I remember I heard somebody say the early church was too comfortable, so God sent a terrorist to wake it up. That being Saul. Because the good news of Jesus is meant to stretch its legs. It's, it's meant to cross thresholds. It's, it's a word for the nations, not just a word for Jerusalem. It's a word for your neighbors, a, a message for Santa Monica and Culver and Palms and Venice and you know, Beverly Hills and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And for that to happen, if we believe that for that to happen, most, I mean, actually, it means any and all comfort must be laid to rest. Philip seems to model his disdain for that. Philip did not tolerate this simplistic life of following Jesus. Now, I really, really, really love Philip. Because he believed in Jesus to the point it changed his life. It changed how he viewed comfort and suffering. And by golly, I hope that can be said of us. If you've come to know Jesus and follow Jesus and you can't recognize a difference from then until now, something is up. Now for Philip, he just didn't follow some church rule book or some missional playbook. Oh, this is what I have to do. I go up here. That's not what happened. Let's be honest. Let's really try to feel what Philip was going through. His friend was just brutally murdered. If you remember, Philip and Stephen were both given the same job back in Acts chapter 6. They were teammates. Philip, God bless him. I wouldn't be surprised if he heard what went down about his friend Stephen, heard of his suffering, heard of his crazy, like, Christ-like forgiveness for his own killers. And Philip was, like, revitalized and freaking out. And Philip was refreshed and completely unsure of his future. And Philip was inspired. Philip was inspired that this Jesus Christ is the real deal. It was all of the suffering around him and this persecution around him that fixated him on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way Philip can love these Samaritans. When a person speaks forth, it's that for him to speak forth, I mean, he is fully convinced of its truth. And it produces like this crazy gospel confidence, even in the crazy, gnarly face of suffering and persecution. And when that happens, when we are fully convinced and we have this gospel confidence, and when that happens to us, we will then be let out. We will be able to do incredible, uncomfortable things. You could possibly even and probably be intensely hated for it. Get this, this early church, due to its suffering and its you know, scattering, spreading effect, to everyone, to everyone around us. They're telling people about this Jesus guy. They sounded ridiculous. They sounded foolish and insane. Not because of so many of the reasons people are like opposing now. Oh, that's miraculous and science. And no, you sound really dumb. Anti-intellectualism, supernatural, that's stupid. It had nothing to do with, with that. The reasons these people, people were bringing the gospel and everybody's like, this is not right, is because of suffering. 
It was because of suffering that people were like rejecting and pushing back, going, what? Christians proclaim, we are to proclaim that the greatest news that the world can ever hear or know is a story of suffering. That being the suffering of Jesus. And to them, it was bonkers. Still is to a lot of people today. It's like, that's backward. What? That life can come from one's death, or that Christ's stripes that were laid upon his back, we can be healed, or that through his brokenness, we can be made whole. Bonkers, bonkers, bonkers. And this promise was not just for Jerusalem, but for the world. And here's the kicker. The effect it was having did not come from the influencers or the elite. All this preaching that was going down did not happen from these supermen, from the nobles. It came from the nobodies. It came from Stephen, who... John, nah. others, and it came from our friend Philip. This is a big bag of nobodies. They had no reputation. They had no classical, like rabbinical training, no large Twitter following. They didn't have any book deals. But yet, look at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and for many and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Please see how big this is, collective church. When the church and when the gospel multiplies, which is a huge part of our vision for this church. Multiplication. To be a healthy and multiplying expression of Christ's church in each of the 23 neighborhoods that make up the west side of Los Angeles. And may God radically interrupt and change us if we stop trying to be multiplying, even like we're doing today. We're loving that we're sending people. They'll be greatly missed, but we know that Isaiah and Taylor and Amanda are taking the gospel. They're going loving people. We want to hold our, our best with open hands. So again, if that ever changes, may God radically change us or put our lights out. See, when we scatter, when multiplication happens, eternal, uh, impactful work is done by all. Me and you and you and me. You guys probably hopefully see the shift here in Acts, right? Is our buddy Phil... Is Philly Cheesecake here? Is he... Cake. <laughs> I don't know my foods. Is Bizarre Buddy Phil here? Is he an apostle? Is he an apostle? Is, is, is Philip one of the 12? No, he's not part of the like Ocean's Eleven crew. Yet, here he is changing the course of the church forever. Changing the course of the church Forever. Because this is what happens when multiplying and scattered ministry takes place. Some of you have been with us for a while, even from our sending church, which Amanda brought up in Hollywood. Um, Some of you are getting to do ministry here that you may have not necessarily had to do or got to do then. 
or there. That's not a knock on Reality LA or Sending Church. That is just the reality of what happens when the church is supposed to do what it's supposed to do, and that's to multiply. It raises people to do what they have never had the ability or had the chance to do before. Philip was the one doing signs and wonders. No longer are we reading that just the apostles did epic things. Significant ministry and evangelism, care and mission done by those other than pastors and paid people and professionals. And suffering, I love this, launches that rocket. This should get us jazzed. This should get us pumped. Because it is not God's design to to just have clergy do all the work. It's not God's design to just have pastors, but all. But all. Do you have a confidence that God can use you? That he can do something with you that there's no way that you could do in and of yourself. I believe God has greater plans for those in the community of the church than the leadership of the church. Because our job is to help you. Our job is to equip and encourage and exhort and inspire you to go out and do some amazing things in the name of Jesus. To go out and be salt or light be a city set upon a hill. So the church. I've heard it asked many times, and you probably have heard it asked too, where is Jesus in suffering? You can see where I'm going with this, but they go, where's Jesus in suffering? Where's God in suffering? And we discussed his presence at great length quite a bit at our very first week in the In Fire series. But I'd also like to say, Christ most visible in suffering is seen in you. Christ most visible in suffering is seen in Joe, Shannon, Whitney, Brian. Isn't this what we have been seeing over and over and over again in the book of Acts? That the continued work of Jesus has begun and continues to spread and care, and teach, and comfort others through his church, you and I. And when this Jesus community does the things that I just rattled off, the effects are, look at verse 8 of chapter 8. So there was much joy in that city. The very first time we see the word joy in the book of Acts, pops his head up, and he's like, I'm here. The very first time we see the word joy is happening in Samaria, of all places. The very first time we see the word joy is easily happening at one of the heaviest episodes the church has ever had. Yet the effect of this suffering brings joy. Suffering can equal and can have joy. As the church reaches and loves and ministers to those who need the same hope in their suffering that all Christians do. If you were to type um, suffering into Google, I can almost guarantee the name Johnny Erickson Tata would come up. Anybody heard of her? She's pretty famous. She was a young lady, young girl, enjoyed tennis and hiking and swimming and horseback riding. And as a teenager, 
Um, very tragically, one day she decided to dive into the shallow end, paralyzing her from the shoulders down. This followed by then years of depression and suicide attempts. And then she came much later to follow Christ and she said these words about the community. She said these words about the community of Jesus, us, and how they are to care for those who are suffering around them. This is what she said. You were made for one purpose, and that is to make God real to those around you. And that is to make God real to those around you. And this is true for how we suffer. For how we suffer, that to suffer well is to have a profound confidence in God's providential goodness. And this is true as we comfort those around us who suffer, as we speak truth into them. Pastor Lorenzo and I were talking to discipleship group a couple weeks ago. Yes, sometimes it's, it's listening and being present in times of our friends suffering, but it's also making sure that you speak truth into them when they start going, is God really there? Is God evil? Does God hate me? Does God hate my spouse, my loved ones? We speak truth, we speak truth, we speak truth. We're preaching the gospel and telling them about Jesus and his great love for us over and over. And then ultimately we also comfort them from the experience of our own affliction. We will never... We will never be able to deliver someone from their pain. I don't know if that's like your tendency. That is so my tendency. If somebody's in pain, I want to be like, oh, I want to absorb it. I take it on myself. We will never be able to deliver someone from pain. But as Christ's agents, we can support the sorrowful and comfort the shattered. As the community of Jesus, this is what we are to do. You follow Jesus, this is what we are to do. Comfort, comfort, comfort out of our own affliction. Preach truth. This is our perspective in suffering, to know the effects of our suffering will bring value more often to those around us for his glory and for his purposes. The second letter to the Corinthian church in the New Testament says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort, comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I've been thinking for weeks. I've been thinking for weeks. I was thinking all this morning how to end on this series on suffering. Like what bow to put on top. What's going to be, you know, unforgettable. People are going to be tweeting like crazy. What's like this epic tale to add to this thing? I got nothing. (laughs) I just kept thinking about my, our, Pastor Lorenzo's desire would be for this community to realize that suffering is foundational. It's foundational. It's foundational for meaningful community. Suffering is foundational for the growth and development and service to him. It's foundational for yours and my own carving and shaping into Christ's likeness. 
And that when suffering darkens your doorstep, maybe it is right now, maybe it has, and it will come again. When suffering darkens your doorstep, our hope for this church, for this community, is to be these lighthouses to all 530,000 people that make up the west side, all the way down to those wanting you to shine brightly to those who are your spouse or your children or your neighbors. If you've placed your life in Jesus or if you follow Jesus, you can suffer knowing that Christ has redeemed our past, that Christ has locked down our future, your future. And if that is the case, if that is the case, what then does that mean of our present? Our past is redeemed and our future is secured. What does that mean for now? I don't think any of us are writing right now in our journals. That means comfort. Comfortable. Let's be comfortable. That means great convenience. My encouragement would be that you would just make much, much, much of Jesus because he is worth it. You will never, ever, ever regret giving more, praying for that person, being prayed for, getting on your knees to bow and worship to him, volunteering, loving one another, having people over. You will never regret it. The Apostle Peter said, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. See, as you face the trials of ordinary existence, look to Jesus and follow his example. And by doing so, by trusting yourself to God, you will not only discover the strength to endure, but also a deeper purpose and a lasting, lasting, lasting joy. That is my prayer for this church community. That is our prayer for this church community. Let's pray for it now.